It's 2011 and the Arab Spring is raging. A lesbian activist in Syria starts a blog. She names it Gay Girl in Damascus. Am I crazy? Maybe. As her profile grows, so does the danger. The object of the email was, please read this while sitting down. It's like a genie came out of the bottle and you can't put it back. Gay Girl Gone. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Alex Panetta. Vice Media, the Canadian-founded news empire that for decades embodied the potential for a new era of journalism and media, has filed for bankruptcy. Vice Media was once one of the hottest names in new media. They've just filed for bankruptcy protection, ahead of a proposed deal to sell off to a consortium of lenders. The news wasn't exactly a huge surprise. The company had been cutting staff. It seemed to be on a downward slide for a few years. But Vice's impact on a generation of fashion, media, advertising, and just culture in a broader sense has been significant. From its drug-fueled gonzo journalism to documentaries from war-stricken corners of the earth, the company tapped into something. Welcome to Bogota, Colombia. We're here chasing after the most dangerous drug in the world. Islamic State press officer Abu Mossa said he would take Vice News to see the front lines. Everybody in! All right, all right, get on, let's go. Do we need more people in here? We've got Vice in here. Audiences, advertisers, investors, they all wanted more. Fledgling journalists found opportunities there, and many stayed producing award-winning work. But Vice Media's history is complicated. The company took risks in its coverage, its tone, and how rapidly it grew to a nearly $6 billion operation. Reeves Weidman has been following the story of Vice for New York Magazine. He's here to explain what it took for the company to reach these heights before it all came tumbling down. Hi, Reeves. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start with a touch of personal nostalgia. Montreal, <laughs> 1994. I'm there graduating from high school. <laughs> Meanwhile, something's happening across town. Uh, Vice's three founders, Shane Smith, Gavin McInnes, Saroosh uh, Alvi, uh, launched the precursor to Vice, uh, which was kind of like a local alt magazine. Okay, so what are these guys trying to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I was there, except I, I probably wouldn't have been cool enough to be in, in the Vice circle. They were these guys who had this idea kind of on a whim. They were just friends um, to start this, what was at the time a magazine that was this uh, irreverent, funny, cool, very off-color uh, publication that was, that was kind of unlike anything you could find. It talked about sex and drugs and music and, and everything that young, cool people um, like to think and talk about in, in ways that, that other publications um, weren't willing or interested in in doing. And, and, and in those early days, it 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 really was this kind of center of of cool in in Montreal, and then and then pretty quickly in in other cities, both in in Canada and and around the U.S. Yeah, so what I remember from that time is it like an even more popular cool weekly called the Mirror. Uh, so there's okay. like a healthy 
a healthy subculture there at the time, like as a, a thriving scene. And there's a musical scene. I'm thinking of uh, bands like Godspeed You Black Emperor. I said, kiss me, you're beautiful. These are truly the last days. And a bit later, Arcade Fire coming out of Montreal. Uh, I mean, is there anything about the ecosystem that, that contributes to the creation of this project? Um, I don't know. You, you, it sounds like you might actually sort of know more more about it. But I think, you know, it, it was kind of this era, you know, in, in, in the 90s into the early 2000s where, you know, small magazines, alt-weeklies were, were having sort of a moment. This was before the rise of, of the internet, but it was also kind of at a, at a sort of era where where Gen Xers in, in particular, which was the generation that, that the vice founders are from, were sort of, you know, looking askance at at corporate media or 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 the media that was out there, the mainstream media. And and you could kind of start these little publications on on a shoestring and and make a business out of it. And and so I think, you know, things like Vice were were sort of popping up in in different places, but um Vice just had kind of a, a some sort of special sauce that 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 felt different and 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 a willingness to do things kind of differently than other people okay so let's talk a bit about that special sauce i mean how would you describe vice magazine in the 90s not just the stuff they were covering but the, it's aesthetic like what was it what was it going for um it, it was going for shock i think in in some way and it was going for um we're going to say the thing that you and your buddies are talking about while you're stoned or drunk at home or at a bar but that you can't find written about anywhere and and that was you know um things like the the they they would have all these guides to different things and it would be the vice guide to anal sex uh the vice guide to shagging muslims like all these things that were you know i think we look back at now and and cringe at and and certainly people at the time um uh you know some people would look at that and be like this is you know what is this this is inappropriate but but for young people um, who were looking for something different, looking for something edgy, um, you know, it, it it was a it was a place um, to go for that, and and it was very funny. Like they were they were they were very clever. Um, while it could be crass at times, they were also um, also very funny writers that they they were having. So it felt like this, it felt like this place you could go to get something you you couldn't get anywhere else, and and the writing was pretty good to boot. And, and, you know, as part of that uh, sort of counterculture attitude, I mean, drugs were <laughs> had a pretty central yeah. role to play in that, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that Shane Smith and, and, and others have, have uh, you know, have fuzzy memories of, of that period. And, and there was, <laughs> they were open about it. And, you know, it was something that they wrote about. Vice was also an example early on of, of the kind of publication um, you wanted to go to parties with the vice people. You wanted to go hang out at the office, which which meant that you were going to be um, having beers and uh, doing whatever drugs were were handy. And so, you know, it was it was certainly a, a, a part of um, certainly the coverage, and it, it was just a part of the the vice lifestyle. Okay, so like by the end of the 90s, Vice has already outgrown Montreal. An investor yeah. convinces them to move to New York. They set up a shop in Brooklyn. So how central was being from Brooklyn, you know, the whole Williamsburg thing, uh -huh. to their whole brand? 
I think it helps. I, you know, I think um, Vice actually, interestingly, they, they first moved to Manhattan. Their sort of first move to New York didn't really pan out. Um, hmm. They they ended up kind of the the three founders on their own again in in Brooklyn uh, in Williamsburg, which was really the the center of of hipster New York and and frankly global hipster culture um, in in the two thousands. And so, I think what they were able to do is is one to to very genuinely um, tap into. Um, this sort of ethos and aesthetic of the time in in Williamsburg in that moment. And then they were eventually able to sort of position themselves as the place who who can translate that to to a broader audience um, in, in a way that uh, you know a more mainstream publication just doesn't have the the authentic connection to. Okay, so you know the magazine um, and some of the other arms of Vice Media presented a lot of opportunity for a young journalist, uh, didn't it? So, what's the appeal to to a young writer uh, giving get, get an op- getting an opportunity to to work for this place? I think it's a couple things. I mean, well, you know, it it wasn't the pay. The pay wasn't very good. Um, the, mm. There were if there were benefits, um, they weren't great, and and not everyone was getting them. So you weren't going there for stable employment. Um, but you were going there one because um, it was fun. It was a fun office to be in. Um, you know, again, if you're a 23 year old and there's free beer in the office and you're a certain kind of young person, like it's kind of hard to imagine um, a better better job. And then. I think just as importantly, um, Vice was a place that was willing to try things and to let young people have a crazy idea and and try it. Like, um, you know, let's see what happens if we try to um, sneak into North Korea with a camera crew. And then you're flying from Shenyang to, to Pyongyang in North Korea and you go, uh, holy shit, we're going to North Korea. And with the express purpose of shooting, which you're not allowed to do, with the express purpose of making a, a documentary, which you're not allowed to do. This is terrifying. So from the first minute I got there, I was shit scared. Um, <laughs> and sure, let's let's just go do it and, and see what happens. And and whether or not we make it in, we'll, we'll make something fun and funny out of it. So your your writing on Vice refers to its uh, so-called twenty-two rule. Yeah. Uh, can you walk me through what that twenty-two rule was? Because I think it says a lot about the, sort of the the work culture. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be clear, it was it wasn't <laughs> codified in the HR handbook in part because <laughs> early on there wasn't much of an HR handbook, but it it was kind of an offhand joke that that one manager made to sort of describe the environment and and the 22 rule was that we hire 22 year olds and we pay them $22,000 a year and we work them 22 hours a day and <laughs> and in some ways that was kind of key to to the early culture and the early growth advice they didn't they didn't pay people a ton they worked you to the bone on it. Um, your your life really became working advice Okay, so we talked a moment ago about uh, Vice outgrowing Montreal. I, w- I want to talk now about it outgrowing even the United States and becoming truly uh-huh. international and outgrowing print. Uh, so around the mid-2000s, it's, it's got an international presence. We see a move into digital video, which results in a lot of the content people probably think of when they think of Vice, like the one where a Vice photographer covers the Westminster dog show on LSD. That dog is crazy. How do you describe the Vice uh, video style? 
You know, I think it's it's something that was very revolutionary at the time and that we've come to think of as, as somewhat normal now, I think, um, or a normal way of telling stories. And, and it was essentially, you know, we're going to, you know, if we're going to go into a war zone, we're going to go into um, a, a war-torn country like Liberia. So is that why your nickname was General Butt Naked? Yes, because I was naked, because I fought naked. Or Pakistan. We're hearing lots of guns being shot around us, and they're just checking to make sure that the guns work. Uh, and they're doing it with live ammo. What I'm wondering or, or wherever it might be, part of the documentary experience is we're sending... Um, a, a young person, um, a young, cool vice employee, um, often with a beard, more often than not white, um, from Brooklyn uh, to go go try to get in wherever you're trying to get into. And, and so the documentaries became, in, at least in some part, as much about the, the, the person um, who was doing this and the vice journalist, which I think you know, again, people could have looked back kind of problematically, but but what it did is, it, in in a in a somewhat positive way, is it is it showed that there was a way to get people to care about um, learning about Liberia um, and and going on a journey to visit there in a way that you know a, a sixty minutes or a frontline documentary on PBS like might not. Um, might not get readers and certainly wouldn't or viewers and, and certainly wouldn't get young people. And so I think that sort of sense of creating these documentaries that sort of doubled as, as kind of adventures um, where you were following along was, was one of their um, sort of innovations. Uh, so your writing has talked about how some former staff have said it's like almost a miracle nobody got killed on one of our foreign <laughs> deployments. Because, you know, for those of us in the news business, when we go to a war zone uh, or to a natural disaster site, and there's these long list of protocols you follow. There's uh -huh. a, a, you got this sense that these guys were just going all out all the time, and 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 they did some good work. Like the, the company starts launching these spinoffs, like Motherboard for tech coverage. Denver, Colorado, ground zero for cannabis legalization and home to a booming tech sector in what could be called the Silicon Valley of weed. Noisy for music. A few months back, I started seeing things pop up everywhere about a YouTube channel showcasing MCs from Blackpool. And it was the maddest thing I've seen in a very long time. Fuck that shit, get testy for crap. I'm in Manchester, girl, don't hate me. That girl's next man wanna date me. Wanna take me to matches and that because... Uh, you know, so, like, was this good quality journalism, in your opinion? I think that's a, a big debate. It was at the time. It, it I think still is today. I think um, that the thing that they became most known for, I think, was was this kind of blending of of entertainment and journalism that I think you can you can see as on the one hand um, having having some problems. Um, on the other hand, they again got got people to pay attention to stories that they they might not otherwise be able to. So you meet a woman online. I love it. I just love it. But it turns out thousands of other people are in love with her too. Janessa Brazil. Janessa Brazil. Janessa Brazil. One woman's image is being used by criminals to target innocent people looking for love online. You win their hearts, you win their wallets. Love, Janessa. My wild quest to find her. The unwitting human face of a digital con. From CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. 
So I want to talk to you about uh, virtue. Um, sure. This is the marketing agency Vice launches in 2006. So what was this all about? Virtue was essentially an, an, an in-house advertising company where um, they would uh, take clients, whether it, in the, and these were huge companies, um, Anheuser-Busch, um, these, these large companies that were saying, we want to try to connect with the, the Brooklyn hipster and everyone who aspires to be one. And we're, we're going to work with Vice on um, ad campaigns, branded content campaigns, um, to try to connect with and and reach that audience, and and that was that was ultimately what the the vice business proposition was. And you know, in some ways, uh, more traditional news outlets have, have kind of followed suit. I mean, even grand old papers like the New York Times have got things like its uh, T Brand Studio uh, to make this kind of paid content, right? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at a lot of the things Vice did, um, you know, yeah, as you point out, many other sort of mainstream publications followed suit or were kind of doing doing the same thing um, at the same time, uh, you know, maybe without the, the, the cheekiness of having your, your main name be Vice and your advertising company be named Virtue. Uh, but they, you know, <laughs> other companies were doing doing sort of similar things. Vice Media is still growing at this point. Uh, Shane Smith is working on making all sorts of deals. And you joke in your piece that the only person who talks more about his deal-making prowess might be Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, and there's some great details in your story about the lengths uh, Shane would go to uh, to market himself and his, his organization. It seems like part of his genius was kind of that that bluster. Uh, Could you tell me one of your or a couple of your favorite stories about his bluster? Yeah, I think, you know, and again, you look back on some of these stories as as both, um, you know, wow, he, he was really pulling the wool over people's eyes. And, and on the other hand, this is just good, good salesmanship. I mean, I, I, I think back to, um, you know, one of one of the stories I, I love is um, early on when the company was trying to sign one of its one of its first big deals. Um, they, uh, you know, had a bunch of executives in, in town, came to Williamsburg. This would be a common thing over over the years that, that these big executives, uh, Rupert Murdoch, Disney executives, uh, you name it, in, in the media world would come and do this tour of the vice office in, in Williamsburg. In this one example, he, uh, Shane, you know, took, took these execs out to dinner, uh, then went to, brought them all to, to a, a vice party, um, you know, that night and, you know, it was like a, whatever, a Tuesday, Wednesday night, the, the vice employees themselves were not really in a partying mood, but he knew he needed to put on a show and he kind of walked around the room just like whispering in his employee's ear, start dancing. <laughs> and, and it was just this, you know, we're going to, we're, we're putting on a good time. And, and even if it's, even if it's not actually a full-time party here, that's what we're selling. Um, and and that's what we need to show. <laughs> I've been uh, working in the news business for quite a few years. I've never been forced to dance before. <laughs> there's, yeah. uh, there's, a, there's other great story about him, uh, like I don't know, like this is strategically uh, timed uh, model photo shoot. What was what was going on with that? At, at the time, and this was kind of early on in Vice's growth in in Williamsburg. You know, they had a small office. They were they were just kind of getting by, and and they were going to have these big executives in. So so. He, uh, Shane walked across the hall and, and told this, uh, this architecture firm that was living in a, or working out of a, an adjacent office, you know, what, how much would it cost for, for me to, to just get you to leave? And we're going to take over your space, like by the end of the week and made that deal happen. Um, and also made a deal with a photo studio, um, that was, uh, that was there, 
uh, in the building of we're just going to take it over for the day and and pretend like we own this thing, um, even <laughs> even though they're just sort of renting it. And and you know, I think Shane's Shane's thing is like, well, if, you know, if they don't ask me, uh, I I don't need to tell them whether we own it. And if if they if they believe it, then then all the better for us. Okay, so let's talk about Gavin McInnes. Um, it's around this time, 2008, when McInnes leaves the company. And I think we should uh, dwell on him for just a moment here because people will know McInnes as the founder of the Proud Boys, this uh, far-right group of uh, men uh, who praise violence, who show up at progressive events in the U.S. and get into dust-ups with Antifa or help lead the attack at the Capitol on January 6th to overturn uh, Donald Trump's election loss. There's probably about... 300 uh, Proud Boys, they're marching eastbound towards the United States Capitol. So uh-huh. how much of that type of politics, like McInnes' politics today, do you see in the early vice, in the content before he left the company? I think it's a complicated story. I, I don't think that it would be fair to sort of characterize early vice as political in any way. Again, this was this was a publication for, you know, young people looking to have a good time. And I, I think... You know, Gavin was very clearly in the early days. He w- he was kind of the editorial brains of the operation, and in whatever sense the there was um, a, a an aesthetic and a and a type of content that that Vice had. It, it in large part came from Gavin, and so as Vice tried to to move away from that, it became a tricky transition for them um, to make, and and I think one that they continued to to struggle with um, for years. Yeah, I'm thinking about one of those guides you alluded to earlier. Uh, the magazine would put out the Vice Guide to Everything. Uh, I mean, some of it was f- yeah pretty funny. Some of it's cultural gatekeeping. Some of it's just like racist, sexist, homophobic. I mean, they talk about when white people can say the N word, about when it's okay to smack a woman. I mean, I'm just wondering, like, yeah, when they pushed Gavin out, was it because they 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 could no longer abide that content or is it also just about making keeping the company palatable enough to keep growing and making money and that gavin was becoming an impediment to that i i think as with all things it's complicated and there were a lot it was a lot going on but i think at the end of the day um shane in particular wanted vice to be big he wanted to Mm. to it to grow 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 and to become a huge media player and certainly by the point um that they pushed gavin out in in 2008 um, that was on his radar. They were working with MTV uh, on a show at the time, um, and and MTV um, had a bunch of sponsors drop out of uh, of of um, a show after they they ran a particular segment. So it was kind of it was becoming clear to Shane um, that you know they had to rein certain things in uh, if they were going to reach the heights that he he now wanted to. And so, you know, I, th- I think uh, it, it's certainly fair to say that that in large part, getting rid of Gavin was a was a business decision as much as much as it was an, an ethical one. And and, and it, it keeps growing. You you alluded to MTV. Let's talk about HBO. Uh, sure. H- how did its partnership with HBO uh, supercharge the brand? Yeah, I mean, I think when when they announced that they were going to have a show on HBO, it gave them this this real um stamp of legitimacy um that you know hbo is is both a, an arbiter of taste and it's also a, a, a an outlet owned by a very large media organization and so i think that was the moment 
Um, you know, while it, it didn't end up being a huge money maker for the company, partly because they spent so much to to make the thing, um, it was this huge legitimizer for them in the eyes of both the audience and advertisers, uh, and and I think other journalists as well. At this point, the money's just rolling in. Rupert Murdoch, uh, you know, the the, uh, the father of Fox News, uh, he's invested uh, $70 million. Of, you know, Vice Media is now valued at more than a billion dollars. Other deals uh, roll in worth a quarter of a billion each, which drive up the yep. valuation of the company to two and a half billion dollars. Uh, talk to me about how this success uh, affects Shane Smith. Well, it affects Shane Smith the way it would probably affect any of us and, and maybe more so with someone with his, his sort of grandiose temperament but you know he be, he became this this big shot media executive uh bloomberg uh, reported that that he had spent three hundred thousand um, dollars on on one dinner um in in las vegas and uh shane his his response to it was it wasn't three hundred thousand it was three hundred eighty thousand plus a tip like he was there to actually exaggerate um the the sort of lavish life that he was now living and and i think Shane was sort of inextricable from the brand, and I, and I think, in some ways, he saw himself and his success as as kind of helping to drive the narrative of Vice being being this kind of serious player. Um, it also, you know, produced a lot of uh, uh, angst and and anger um, from from other people in the company and and from those twenty two year olds who were only making twenty two thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And then, in the midst of all this, the, the Me Too movement starts gaining steam everywhere. Uh, you know, senior vice employees are, are the subject of a series of allegations. Their settlements, a New York Times Bad report. Bath. How much of a problem does this become for the company? It, it, it was it was a really really difficult period. You know, as it was for for many companies, but I think particularly so for Vice. And and you know, th- this came at a moment in 2017 when the company had just hit its its six billion dollar valuation, um, which which was its peak, um, and was really trying to really now had to prove that it could deliver um on on the promise of of what it was selling and and suddenly um this this thing that had always been a part of of the vice brand which was we we drink we party we do drugs um we we have sex including in in the office um or, or within the office um were were things that that were very much a problem and in in the general discourse and and culture and and so i think for vice was a kind of brand problem for the company so i think it it came at a at a particularly difficult moment for for the company and and turned a lot of uh people both inside the company and outside the company sort of uh, against vice and there were also these non-traditional company agreements. Employees had to sign these uh, agreements. What were they? The gist of the agreement was, you know, you 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 know where you're getting into when when you come here, and and you know some people were comfortable with that. Some people, for a time, were were kind of happy to be at a at a place where you could kind of do whatever. But through the Me Too movement and and other things, it, it you know suddenly that kind of workplace just became um, totally untenable. And this is right around the time of Vice's high watermark. It uh, hits this estimated value of $5.7 billion. This is yeah. the turning point, right? Like, what else is happening? Where where do the fortunes start to start to slide? 
I mean, I think the sexual harassment was sort of was a blow to the company's reputation at this moment where it had this $5.7 billion valuation. It had just taken on a huge, almost half, uh, half a billion dollar investment from a large private equity firm. And, and the expectations for, for Vice were now so enormous um, that, that anything short of the company becoming this huge monolithic player on the scale of an, of an MTV or, or frankly even bigger um, were, were going to not only be just sort of a disappointment, but, but they, they, would, they wouldn't work because the company was now taking on so much money from investors who did not want to, to create a, a, a company that made cool documentaries. They wanted to make the biggest um, b- media brand for young people in the world. And that is just really difficult to do. And I, I think you can point to a lot of, of missteps um, that the company made. But ultimately, I think you know that the problem was that the ambitions were set so high, both by Shane and by the people who were choosing to invest in Shane, um, that it was it was almost going to be impossible to to actually live up to. And Shane wants to sell, right? It was, it was the whole plan was to cash out, and it just never happened. Like, well, what went wrong? Shane felt very strongly at, at one point. He 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 basically was was sure that that Disney was gonna uh, was gonna buy Vice and and all you know when when you're trying to do that um, at at this particular moment where growth was everything, all you need to show is. Is we're getting bigger and bigger. We're adding a show on HBO. We're adding a cable channel. Um, our audience continues to go up, and people will be willing to look past the numbers. Once that sale doesn't happen, um, which which falls apart for a variety of reasons, then then suddenly you're left with well, well who's going to buy us? And and if no one's going to, if there's not many media companies out there willing to pay six billion dollars for us, like how do we get to some point where we can become profitable? And, and the company was just never able to, to make that turn. And that takes us to the bankruptcy. Uh, we've seen yeah. a lot of new media companies fold or contract. Uh, BuzzFeed News just folded. Um, all newsrooms are struggling these days. So is there something different, very specific uh, device that happened in this case. All media companies were for a period of time just so beholden to to tech giants and and social media companies. Um, the the growth at all costs sort of model that a lot of uh, companies were were trying to to apply to, and and just the disruption of the ad market um, were, were all things that every company um, was dealing with. I think what makes the the rise of all advice so shocking is is how big it got, which I think. W- both makes the fall um, sort of all the more startling to 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 see just in the numbers from 5.7 billion to a sale for 225 million dollars, um, but also was was one reason that it that it fell so fast is that this the fact that Shane was not content being the place that made cool documentaries meant that he had to shoot for the moon and in shooting for the moon you you burn lots of cash. You, you inevitably make lots of, of bad decisions, and ultimately it, it all just came crashing down. You, you just alluded to the potential acquisition of Vice Media for uh, $225 million. I mean, it's a, it's a massive fall from the nearly $6 billion valuation in 2017. Uh, but uh, from uh, reports and from your knowledge of the company, what do you expect will happen next? Like, are journalists, 
all out of the job? Will Vice uh, live on? Will the brand live on in some other form? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people with a lot of money um, that are stuck in Vice that that would obviously like to get something out of it. The the reports in in the news suggest that a, a couple of the in, investors, um, Fortress, which is a large hedge fund, and and George Soros's um, investment fund are, are are potentially planning to make this this bid. And um, you know, I, I would expect there is some some value here and and there are certainly parts of the company that that will remain i think you know the the bankruptcy is never a great thing and and certainly i would expect that a, a lot of journalists so a lot of employees of all kinds um are are going to be out of a job in in the future and they they've already started to to cut some cut some parts of the company but but i would also expect you know that that certain parts of it will remain and and you know, I think it will what will be interesting to watch is whether um, you know does does the vice brand remain or do different parts of the company get sort of um, you know sold for parts to to other outlets such that you know the the vice brand doesn't necessarily even exist anymore. And I think you know it it doesn't hold the cachet it once did, and so the people who own it are going to have to decide you know does does the name mean something anymore or are we just trying to get as much money out of out of this thing as we can. Okay, so it's uh, no longer the hot young thing, but if I'm understanding you correctly, it's uh, it's not dead yet either. Uh, so, hey, thanks for doing this. I uh, really appreciate it, Reeves. Of course. Thank you for having me. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. Tune in tomorrow, The Front Burner. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.